intentions. Welcome back to the Fortune in Charge novel review. For this episode, we will be concluding chapter one. In this section, we see Kathy's relationship with Al intensify, her family disdain for him, and her eventually choosing him over her family. Very quickly, the two move in together. She becomes pregnant, and they are happy for a period of time. Kathy loves being a mother to Al Jr., but grows restless after a period of time, having very few people to actually talk to since her family essentially disowned her. She begins going out with a neighbor named Tessa, which is a good release for her for a while. However, Al, sitting alone, begins to grow paranoid of what she is doing during these girls' nights. He suppresses his emotions as much as possible, but he eventually accuses her of cheating. When she flippantly dismisses him, he grows angry and hits her. It is an irrevocable act for both, as Al's true nature is revealed to both. For her, the clear warning signs of their early dating days, and Al seeing this latent wickedness that must have come from his evil father. After a separation, Al comes back a changed man, genuinely repentant to an extent, but mainly because he is subdued because of a growing addiction to prescription drugs. However, things go well for a while. Al's business grows, Kathy gives birth to another son, Cody, and they all seem uh, to be happy. When this revelation eventually comes out about Al's drug use, Al becomes unleashed. He's unapologetically abusive, and Kathy is forced to leave and return to her parents. The chapter concludes as it started, now with the pork and sauerkraut meal prepared and Kathy and her boys begrudgingly eating it, with the vague hope it will bring them luck. My intention for this chapter is to hopefully set the tone for the novel and to have an established world. The fate versus free will theme should be apparent. I wanted this novel to be very grounded in the real world, somewhat counter to non-exodus where a character's ambitions were either ethereal or massive, as in wanting to actually change the world. For this novel, I think the ambitions are simple in a sense, wanting to be happy, satisfied with their family, friends, and career path. Getting by, in a sense, and all that entails. Inspiration. I would say Faulkner was still a major influence on me in this novel. I even mentioned Azalea Dine in this chapter. Um, for a while, I did not like him, um, and in that novel in particular, I was frustrated to the point of wanting to just stop reading. However, at some point while reading, it all clicked for me. When that occurred, it is an experience that I have yet to replicate in my reading experience. I felt proud in staying with it, and much more invested in the story and the characters once the writing style and its point unlocked in my mind. In a way, I try to replicate that experience in my writing. I always want to be interesting and inventive, but if there is some initial struggle as you read, I don't necessarily see that as a bad thing. The hope is that it starts to unravel itself as you read. When it happens, you feel an intimacy, a connection with the character's plot and general style of the novel. 
immersed in the fictive dream. Beyond the reading experience, Faulkner's ability to hone in on ordinary people and show their noble struggle is also an inspiration. As a reader, I had never really encountered a genuine narrative centered on Philadelphia in terms of its ordinary neighborhoods and people. I'm sure it does exist somewhere, but since I had never encountered it, I thought, why not write it myself? I wanted the industrial, the specter of former glory, the courage yet insular nature of the areas I grew up in, willing to fight but frightened to venture too far from Philadelphia, or perhaps stuck and not knowing how to get out. With the particular setting of Tacony, it is right on the Delaware and features a bridge with New Jersey on the other side. It is right there, a new path, suburbia, safer, more comfortable existence. Yet these characters remain in place. Is it pure loyalty or not wanting to truly lose the edges that the city and the neighborhood have sculpted in them? That is Kathy Hume, tough, maybe tougher still for having to endure Al Mercer, forced to be reckoned with even in her humble, subtle ways. Craft and structure. The pork and sauerkraut is a big symbol of this chapter. Um, it represents for Kathy the domestic life. It is also the following of tradition while not fully knowing why or not understanding its point. That she is truly is trying to uh, follow her mother's recipe, I think reveals that feeling of being unprepared that I think all of us feel um, from time to time. Though we by nature resist or flight or fight our fate, um, rather, um, I find it interesting how sometimes we want to just be told what to do. By having that guideline, that recipe, at least Kathy is comforted that it will not be a complete disaster. By the time we reach the end of the chapter, I think we see Kathy is singularly focused on being the best mom she can be. Her effort into her sons, her investment, will be her ultimate accomplishment. How they turn out will be representative of her and hopefully how good of a parent she truly is. Part of herself is dissolved, but as the chapter concludes, though the taste was bitter, they swallowed it down, hoping for luck and prosperity for the year ahead. Kathy's parents did not approve of Al when they first met him. He was nearly four years older than Kathy, and he spoke to Roderick and Jacqueline as equals, without the Mr. and Mrs. Hugh moniker. It spoke to Al's lack of refinement, but it also seemed to be out of his character to kowtow to his elders regardlessly. He also called Kathy babe and lover, which rubbed her parents the wrong way. Roderick could not believe his tomboy daughter would smile and giggle at such remarks, but that's what he saw. How had this long-haired cavalier infiltrate her so? She wouldn't take it from the grease monkeys at Sesto's, but this twerp broke her into some flitty arm piece, seemingly overnight, and they were moving fast. Al talked that night at her parents' house about marriage and children and moving in together, mere weeks after they started dating. After he left, she got into a big argument with her parents and the arguments continued until they forbade her from seeing him, which only led to her moving in with him the next day. Four months later, she was pregnant. 
At six months pregnant, she married Al and took a hiatus from Sesto's garage. Then on March 12th, she gave birth to Al Mercer Jr. He had the eyes and nose of his father and her cherry brown hair, a heartbreaker from birth, as his father would say. Al Jr. was healthy and blithe, laughing at his Sesame Street books and Looney Tunes. He was an easy child to put to bed, but he always found ways to escape the crib. Kathy stayed glued to her baby monitor and essentially confined to the house at the corner of Cottage and Knorr, across from Distant Elementary School. It was a small, two-story row home that Al had bought as a bachelor, obviously not planning to be a husband and father nearly two years later. Now, Kathy was in it all day long with her son. She woke each morning with a vague but grand goal for the day, perhaps study one of her stacks of car manuals, or review her automobile technology textbook, or maybe rearrange the furniture in the living room to optimize space. However, those goals never seemed to get accomplished, as she would be busy with Al or preoccupying herself with a thousand other smaller tasks. She never admitted it, but she was bored and lonely. Most days, only talking to Al or Al Jr. or a brief encounter with a neighbor sitting on the stoop. Her family had ceased speaking to her after she chose Al over them, and she yearned to just pick up the phone and beg for forgiveness each day. However, then she would realize there was nothing to apologize for. They were the ones missing out on her husband and child. Still, she wondered how long it would last. Would she never see her parents or Daniel or Bridget again, nor her grandmother? Kathy began to become acquainted with her neighbor down the block, a bubbly 21-year-old named Tessa, who still lived with her parents. Tessa shared good gossip about the people on her block, and she ran in some similar circles with Kathy's friends from high school, which felt like a lifetime ago. On Friday nights, they would have a girls' night and go to a local bar, because she was still young, Kathy reminded herself, and she needed to leave the house at some point. Al would stay at home with his son, drinking and watching sports, and his mind would wander. It would wander to places he didn't want it to go, but it was there, and he could do nothing about it. He would imagine Kathy at the bar, most likely minding her business, and guy after guy coming up to her and buying her drinks. Worse than that, she and Tessa dancing, and some local loser dancing with her, and just getting closer and closer. Maybe she even liked it. Maybe she forgot about him and the baby and remembered how attractive she was, and she just went for it, and he was just a big joke to her. The orphaned landscaper who never went to college and hadn't a clue what was going on. Then she would come home, and Al would fight his hardest to suppress these thoughts and just smile and ask if she had fun. After a few weeks, he couldn't suppress it any longer and accused her of cheating on him. How dare he, she thought. How dare he try to wilt her down from a tough mechanic to a doting housewife who needed to ask her husband's permission to leave the house in less than a year. She scornfully replied, kiss my ass for asking me something like that, and slammed the bedroom door shut. Al wouldn't let it stand. No way could he let his woman talk to her, him like that, like he was less than a man. He paced the living room, unable to think clearly. She couldn't. She couldn't. She couldn't do that to him. He kicked the door open to see her nonplussed on the bed. How could she not care? He was just some joke to her, a buffoon that was too slow to see her cheating on him every Friday night. He balled up his fist and punched her directly in the mouth. She looked at him aghast, not shocked over the pain of the blow, but his capacity to actually inflict physical violence on her. He stood over her equally as shocked, knowing what this all meant. He had become the true bastard. He had become his father. Al stayed with a friend for the next week. They hadn't even had the conversation. He just packed a suitcase and left. 
It was evil blood, he thought. Some wicked trace of a father that he never knew. Maybe he even witnessed it. Maybe he was his son's age when it happened, and some impulse had laid dormant until now that said it was okay to hit a woman. Some learned behavior not discovered until now. He couldn't shake the thoughts, the replay of the moment, and what Kathy must be thinking currently. It was irreversible, no way of going back. Alcohol didn't block it for him, it just made him more emotional. Work seemed to make it exponentially worse. Pushing a lawnmower, lugging sod and stones, snapping off branches and twigs, all oddly violent now. His buddy turned him on to Valium. It made him feel good. Not incapacitated, just euphoric. The thought's still there, but not as severe. After a week, he returned to the house with his head down low, barely able to speak. She was tense, but she saw his sorrow. She couldn't help but feel sympathy. He was born with bad breaks. He was lucky not to be feral in her eyes. She knew she was always in for a man with rough edges. It was not right to hold such a grudge. The chained dog who never got a pat on the head was liable to snap from time to time. She told herself she needed to show him more love, and he would never hurt her again. The following months were good. He was tender to her, almost to the point of being unmasculine, and Kathy felt safe and happy. She focused more on Junior, who was crawling all over the place and beginning to say basic words. Her desire to return to the car garage faded, and she focused on just being as good of a mother as possible, and her biggest dreams were now on her son. She would read to him every day and go over counting and sing to him and have him try to draw with the crayons. He would be a well-rounded young man and blow the other kids out of the water by the time he started school. Everyone, who would, everyone would often admire how good of a mother she was, but more importantly, he would be prepared. Mercer Lawn Care was generating steady business, and Al soon had to take on another truck and hire four new employees. The company even started to take on contracts for apartments and residential areas in Torresdale, Holmesburg, and Morrell Park. Al showed her affection like never before, and Kathy became attracted to him in, in new ways, seeing him as a responsible business owner and provider for the family. Soon, Kathy was pregnant once more, and by July, Cody was born. So there she was, serving her son's pork and sauerkraut for good luck on the first day of 1983. Al had not touched her violently in years, but he grew more withdrawn and despondent each day. Kathy had concluded it was due to work pressures. But on a hot Saturday in April, all it took was Al walking to the corner store to buy but a pack of cigarettes, and Al Jr. asking his mommy if she wanted to see where Daddy kept his secret candies, which were in his F-150 glove box, to reveal the baggie of Valium and the abuse to continue once more. The arguments were nightly, Kathy always suspicious that Al was drugged, Al on edge when he was not. Whatever restraint he kept those years crumbled in an instant a levee with a giant breach, and the flood inevitable. It started with shouting, then shoving, then hitting. He lost his sense of remorse and just accepted that was who he was and that she was a fool to provoke him. She shaped and tamed him for years, but eventually it all must come out. One night after he beat her nearly unconscious, she did what she thought she would never do. She called her mother. Jacqueline Bell held back the ahas and I told you he was no goods and told her to pack her things and sons and come over to Keystone Street immediately. It was truly surreal, nearly seven years since she had last sat in the family room with her father and mother. Her parents much older and starting to resemble her grandparents, but still preserved in their image, this memory before Al entered her life. Roderick's eyes had worsened, and he now wore glasses permanently, still in his old eagle's cardigan, 
and Jacqueline had heavier bags under her eyes and her fingers nearly clawed with arthritis. They stared alien to her and her sons and then slowly began to give her updates from the last seven years, which she was forbidden from contacting her family. Daniel was a police officer and married two years prior. He and his wife, Sharon, were trying for their first child. Bridget was a nurse at Nazareth Hospital and married for four years to a construction worker named John. They still lived in Tacony and were waiting a little bit for children. It was remarkable how she had to strain herself to see her brother and sister's faces. They were surely older by now as well. It was something that she had wanted for a long time, to be reunited with her family, but she couldn't suppress the hatred she had for them and the implications of the situation. How hard their hearts were to shut her out of their lives to not send a card on Christmas, or to even know they had grandchildren and nephews. All because of a man. A man they disagreed with. A man they did not like. A man they were afraid of. And a man they were ultimately right about. Al moved out and transferred the house to Kathy. He got an apartment by the fish hatcheries in Linden Park and made hour-long visits to the boys until Kathy felt he could be trusted around them again. And so Kathy and her sons chewed her mother's pork and sauerkraut, though the taste was bitter and swallowed it down, hoping for luck and prosperity for the year ahead. That will conclude Chapter 1. Thank you for listening and your continued support. Please be sure to follow on Instagram at Matthew Glasgow Author, and visit Amazon for reading options for this novel and others. Until next time.